2014. This is the Hermetic Hour, and tonight we present a reading by Pope Runyon, Frater Fabian, of his 1976 essay, Negative vs. Positive Gnosis, from Gnostica Magazine, number 40. This is an important instructive paper dealing with the ancient and modern spiritual differences between polemic libertine Gnosticism, hermetic Neoplatonism, and ancient and modern paganism, of which quickens druids, etc. Now, these differences are so deep and so misunderstood that many New Agers involved in the occult do not know what they profess to believe in. They participate in various groups simply because they are attracted to the style and the glamour of the organizations, and because it provides a rebellion against the religion of their parents. And this article explains the fundamental differences between Gnosticism of the negative worldview and the hermetic magic of the positive worldview, comparing them to the pagan and neo-pagan natural worldview. Now, you will discover how similar polemic Gnosticism is to the fundamental Christianity it propels against, and how similar hermetic magic is to tantric Buddhism. Now, this letter and this paper will be reprinted in text form and posted as an instruction on our website. So, tune in and become transcendentally demystified. Before I start, I'd like to say that this letter, this article was, was written in, uh, and published in 1976, and so it is a bit dated. And I started off by stating that uh, the... Thelemites, uh, the OTO, kept itself separate and, and aloof from uh, the pagan community. Uh, uh, and, the, and the Golden Dawn also kept itself aloof from the pagan community. Um, but that, in, the, in this day and time, that's not exactly the case. And, and we have a lot more interpenetration. So, but at that time, in 1976, that was the case. So with that in mind, we'll start off. Now, in this article, the author cuts through the veils of mystery to reveal the conflicting principles of philosophy and psychology that lie behind the neo-Gnostic system of the late Aleister Crowley and the current neo-pagan witchcraft covens. And he explores the advantages and disadvantages of each system, arriving at the conclusion that the Hermetic Kabbalah stripped of his Renaissance Christian veneer, offers the best of both extremes. So, this is negative versus positive Gnosis. Have you ever wondered why the followers of Aleister Crowley seldom involved themselves in the neo-pagan ecumenical activities? Members of different neo-pagan traditions regularly communicate, meet together socially, and even participate in each other's rituals. But, where are the Thelemites? If they have a pagan pantheon and a ceremonial tradition and an interest in tarot and astrology like Gardnerians and Ferrarians and the OTA and other Aquarian Age occultists, why do they remain outside of the subculture network? Well, Dolomites might answer that, in their opinion, the present neo-pagan movement is vulgarized over simplification of earlier Golden Dawn and, Aria and Ordo Templi Orientist traditions, which they still venerate, and that they would have little to gain from any association with it. Well, we must concede that there is a measure of truth in this, and, and, and it is often true that uh, a typical Thelemite is more intellectually inclined than the average Wiccan, but, but I, I submit that the argument is actually superficial. Today's neo-pagans have certainly borrowed ceremonial forms and techniques from the Victorian and Edwardian paramasonic lodges, but, but their inspiration has come from such modern lights as Carl Jung and Robert Graves. What has emerged for the neo-pagans is a transmutation of a philosophy older than that of the Golden Dawn and the OTO. In effect, it's a return to a pre-Zoroastrian nature cycle mythos 
rather than the 17th century apocalyptic Gnosis of Dee and Kelly, I guess 16th century actually, Dee and Kelly, which exerted such a heavy influence on Mathers and Crowley. Now, this Enochian system represented an Elizabethan reassertion of the first century Gnostic doctrines, along with the biblical book of Revelations, in Crowley's case, Rabelais, Gargantua, and the Enochian keys, especially the 19th, inspired that neo-Gnostic gospel par excellence, Slipper Alvel Legus, the Book of the Law. Now, in this article, I propose to examine the philosophical and psychological dichotomy between neo-paganism and polemic Gnosticism, so that uncommitted occultists will have a fuller understanding of the basic differences that uh, uh, those readers who are already affiliated with one group or another will perhaps be a little more tolerant of the opposing point of view. Now, I realize that this is a task from which even Henry Kissinger might shrink, but I do feel that the issue is overdue for consideration, and being a hermetic ceremonial magician, I stand somewhere between the two camps. <coughs> I personally hold that the venerable doctrines of Hermes Trismegistus happily resolve Gnostic transcendentalism with pagan natural harmony. But then, I must say that for my conclusion. First, let's explore the philosophies behind Philemon Wicker. Now, starting with, starting with the Philemites, we must admit that it is virtually impossible to categorize the Polish system from his own writings or from those of his apologists. <clears throat> Crowley thrived on obscurity, exaggeration, and paradox. <coughs> he made the sweeping claim that the common factors in all the major religions and mystical systems had been resolved in one scientific method of attainment under the charge, under his charge as the prophet of a new aeon. Now, if we try to classify him exclusively as a neo-Gnostic, his devotees will insist that he was also a Kabbalist, a Rosh a Sufi, and a Swami. Now, thereby forcing us to knock over the terrible head and behold the person of the great Oz himself. Now, to do this, we'll employ a scholarly comparative model, the Gnostic religion by Hans Jonas from which we can develop an understanding of the historical precedents, the philosophical principles, and the psychological substructure behind Crowley's Thelemic system. We will see that it is as different from the current neo-paganism as are the doctrines of Anne Rand from those of Karl Marx. Hans Jonas affords this unique illumination through his astute comparison of first-century Gnosticism to present-day existentialism. He points out that Gnosticism was a synthetic amalgam of Greek philosophy and Near Eastern mythology that gained popularity at a time when socio-political conditions were not dissimilar to those in the world today. Greco-Roman civilization around the Mediterranean during the first century of our era was a gigantic bureaucracy, spawning huge urban centers where thousands of dissatisfied people were looking for meaning in an unnatural existence. Massive urbanization had estranged man from his familiar environment and the traditional security of the extended family group. He found himself alone in crowds of strangers, lost in the grim filth of inescapable cities. The gods of his childhood were only fables, and the logical philosophy with which he, which he had replaced them was hardly intended to raise his spirits. He was ready to listen to one of the most original and daring religious doctrines ever conceived, Gnosticism. Now, the Gnostics told him that he was miserable because the world itself was miserable. It was the lowest hell created and ruled by an ignorant, evil demiurge. He yelled above, whom men called Yahweh, Zeus, or God. 
Man's real heavenly father was a hidden deity, often referred to by the anagram IAO, which was said to mean Isis, Apophis, Osiris. Now, this, this secret hidden god lived far beyond the stars in, in the original paradisial home of the human race. Humankind had fallen or had been seduced into bondage in the material world, but his soul, his nos, might ascend to paradise after death if he had heard the call and had received the knowledge, in other words, the Gnosis. Now, knowing the proper magical formulas, his soul could ascend through the demon guardians, the archons of each level of the cosmos, until he became one with the light across the abyss. There are many ramifications to this basic doctrine, some of which we shall examine. But essentially, this dualistic concept, a distant father god separated by a vast abyss from his lost children, who are imprisoned on an evil world from which the only, only escape is the knowledge. The knowledge to return home. As the fundamental te- this is the fundamental teaching of Gnosticism. And it's my contention that Crowley was first, last, and always a Gnostic. Now let's examine some of the many parallels between the Thelemic system and Gnosticism. Simon Magus, from which we get the title Magus, uh, derives, uh, yeah, that's what, what, what our term Magus derives from. It is fairly familiar to us from the book of Acts in the New Testament. Now, he was the prototype of the medieval Dr. Faustus and the modern Master Therian. Now, Simon was a contemporary of Jesus, a wonder-working Gnostic magician who claimed to be God incarnate. And he found a prostitute in a brothel in Tyre. He named her Helena, after it all in Troy. And then he declared that she was the fallen thought of God, whom uh, the deity, in the form of Simon himself, had descended to redeem. And those who believed in their divinity would be saved. Now, Simon's Helena is probably the model for Crowley's Scarlet Woman, as this quote from the Book of the Law intimates. Now ye shall know that the chosen priest and apostle of infinite space is the priest, the beast, and his woman called the scarlet woman is all power given. And they shall gather my children into my fold, and they shall bring the glory of the stars into the hearts of men. mean to imply that Crowley's cosmology is identical with Simon's. The Scarlet Woman is the typical embodiment of the Thelemic goddess Babylon, which, along with the title The Great Beast 666, Crowley adapted from the biblical book of Revelations. Babylon is the great harlot who rides upon the beast. It mattered little to Crowley that the whore and and the seven-headed beast represented the corruption of pagan Rome, as John revealed in Revelation 17:9. And I quote, The seven heads are like the seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And the imagery was Crowley to his liking, and it was a Gnostic characteristic to borrow and transform mythological motifs to create synthetic pantheons that were not intended to be taken literally, at least not by those initiates who had received the Gnosis. Now, perhaps this is the reason why Babylon, who is attributed to Saturn, Binah, is not synchronous with the older pagan goddess archetypes attributed to the moon of Venus. That's just a that sign. At this point, an astute critic might raise the objection that the Gnostics were anti-materialists who disdained all physical pleasures as temptations from the demiurge, intended to keep man desensitized and even drunk so that he could not hear the call and would not and would remain enslaved. Well, how can this be reconciled with Crowley's doctrine of unrestricted hedonism? Well, the answer is that most Gnostic sects made asceticism the rule. 
But there were some cults in which liberty and lifestyle was encouraged, at least for the elite pneumatics. Uh, the underlying doctrine of this was the same. The demiurge was evil and the world was hell, but the liberty Gnostics theorized that the demiurge, if he, the demiurge insisted on morality, uh, for example, the Ten Commandments, and then in order to escape his evil power, man must systematically break every rule that God has laid down. Now, herein lies the original rationale behind Hellenic Hedonism and a corollary of the personal oath that Crowley took as a young man to break every rule of Christian society. Our thoughtful readers will realize that this can be a philosophical invitation to ruthless evil, and, and it makes uh, the petty selfishness of the Satanists seem pale in comparison. But in fairness to Crowley and his followers, this rebellion formula was never carried to the ultimate degree. Although Crowley liked to be called the wickedest man in the world, the naughtiest man would have been a more appropriate title, if we can overlook the abstract potential for clandestine extremism that could develop from the Lima, we can concede that some people might derive genuine benefit from accepting the Book of the Law. We've all met the kind of person who has an authority figure, a set of rules, or a restrictive system to blame for his or her problems. Whether there is any truth to their reasoning or not, they will continue to misdirect their energy in futile protests against the externalized object of their frustrations rather than take the logical course of ignoring, adjusting, or resolving the problem. They may be compared to the proverbial cow who stands on her own udder, bawling in pain, when all she needs to do is lift her hoof. Unfortunately, our social system requires a measure of guilt conditioning. Quite often, this process is overdone and people grow into adulthood as prime suckers for the institutional rip-off or the official put-down with no defense except a nervous collapse. For such people, the acceptance of liberal, the book of the law, could produce a useful counterbalancing personality component, especially if their original guilt conditioning was imposed by a fundamental Christianity. Now, the first commander of the California OTO in the 1930s, Wilfred Smith, was an exponent of this idea. He considered that the Agape Lodge in Pasadena it was a cult for introverts seeking power. Psychologically, do what the will should be the whole of the law can be a useful therapeutic tool because once a person accepts accepts it, he or she has no one to blame but themselves for their unhappiness. Without external restrictions on which to project hostility, one must confront internal problems. Now Thus, one takes the first step to achieving mental health. Philosophically, Hans Jonas has compared ancient Gnosticism with modern existentialism, which is essentially a newest philosophy, and, uh, and he has rightly concluded that the transcendental dualism of the former is actually a more positive position. He is certainly right. A far distant paradise is better than no paradise at all especially among those who agree that the world is a miserable place and that life upon it is nasty, brutish, and short. So much for individual considerations. In the broadest perspective of the cult experience, the Abbey of Thelema, as a communal system, seems to have some, has some factors in common with the Synanon program, especially the idea of separating its members from constant interaction with society at large so they can construct a social system and group consciousness of their own rather than rehabilitate the idea is transibility to what will hopefully be a more responsive and congenial separate universe. When we consider that what hell our society inflicts upon creative genius children, we can easily understand their feelings of alienation and the promise that an elite polemic community holds out to them. Although I do not accept 
the book of the law or even subscribe to Gnostic dualism, I would still like to see a successful, albeit responsible, Abbey of the Lima Project in operation for no other reason than the alternative it would offer, real freedom of which there is precious little left. And it depends upon the existence of such alternatives, whether you like them or not. To summarize, we find that philosophically and psychologically, Thelemites are among the alienated intelligentsia of our society. This estrangement seems to transcend the man-made environment of cities to include nature itself, especially as personified by the traditional deities men have worshipped as lords of the earth's sphere. Now, Crowley was certainly a believer in the evil demiurge principle as a look at his entries 26 and 72 in his Gematria lexicon from the Equinox will confirm. Actually, what we are seeing in Thelema is the same pessimistic Gnosis, to use Francis Yates' term, that characterized first-century Gnosticism in general and, and still characterizes fundamental Christianity. The real difference lies in their salvation formulas. Withdrawal from bondage to the physical world via asceticism and moralism versus escape from bondage via calculated rebellion against the laws of an evil god in order to discredit either system on philosophical grounds. And it would, in order to discredit either system on philosophical grounds, it would first be necessary to prove that the world is really a beautiful place and that life upon it is endlessly desirable. Now, this is a position held by such a small percentage of the planet's population that in terms of human perception, it could hardly be supported. The Gnostics, whether aesthetic or libertine, have persuasive and sophisticated arguments for their transcendentalism. Even Carl Jung was fascinated by the analogy of the soul ascending the spheres to his, uh, to his psychoanalytical process of individuation. And from a historical point of view, the Gnostic contributes to the Western esoteric tradition and in such a, in such a prominent way that no occult scholar should ever belittle it. Now, now let us take a look at the pagan position in comparison to Gnosticism. Now, according to the mythologist Joseph Campbell, the Western world before Zoroaster, that's around 660 B.C., uh, shared the Eastern monistic concept of the universe as a vast totality operating in a series of cycles. Time was not thought of as linear, a historical track, but rather as a circle with no beginning and no end. Religion certainly celebrated the yearly death and rebirth cycle of nature, personified in the mythical adventures of its pantheon, as in the Canaan of Melchizedek's time, that's circa 1400 B.C., and the god of rain and vegetation, Baal, was murdered by his alter ego, Moat, the archdemon of Cerulean death, during the summer drought, and Baal was annually resurrected by the eternal goddess, Astarte, in the autumn before the winter rains. These mesocosmic events were synchronized with the macrocosmic phenomenon of the solstice and the equinoxes. And microcosmically and sociocosmically, the pagan celebrants tuned themselves to the rightful rhythm of the universe and ultimately found within the individual a group psyche of the central sun about which all the spheres revolve or what Joseph Campbell refers to as the still center point of eternity. Now, this deification of nature and the identification with it was an ideal theology for stabilized agricultural communities where people lived on the land in large families and had a strong traditional affinity for the local ecozone. It was a religion for those who belonged and who wished to continue belonging. And they didn't hate the world. and The world was a nice place. Now, 
With the advent of Zoroaster, a revolutionary philosophical concept was introduced. The good light and the evil darkness were conceived as being at war with each other on a linear historical track that would end in a final decisive battle, in effect, the apocalypse. Dualism had now been introduced, and every religion in the West was subsequently affected by it. Even in remote Scandinavia, there arose the concept of Gotterdammerung, the twilight of the gods. Now, the philosophical advantage of dualism is that it often offers man more of a choice, more freedom of action in relation to his environment, and it was therefore better suited to the growing urban population of the Pax Romana period when Gnosticism arose. And monastic, monistic nature cults have a propensity to create complex clockwork systems of sanctified minutiae in which ambition, creativity, and social progress are stultified. Examples of this are too well known and numerous to need citing. The dualistic concept usually splits man down the middle, making half of him good and the other half evil, opposing his physical component to his spiritual aspect. He is at war with himself, seeking victory rather than balance. Nature, who was his lover and even his goddess, has now become his antagonist, both within and without. His prophets declare that man has been given letters of mark and reprisal signed by God to plunder the universe, or maybe. Now, there are strong elements of dualism in Judaism acquired from direct Zoroastrian influence, and even stronger, more transcendental aspects of it in Christianity, deriving from Gnosticism. In my opinion, Christianity is an outgrowth of Gnosticism, and the doctrine of the Trinity can be fully understood only in terms of Gnostic cosmology, in effect. As the distant Father, the Son, or Christ, who brings the Gnosis and the Holy Ghost within man who responds to it. Now, dualism tends to support dynamic, progressive, and open-ended cultures. It is probably one of the major factors behind the phenomenal rise of Western civilization. Up until recently, this dogma of progress as a social ethic and goal was accepted without question. European and American humanitarians went forth to Christianize, educate, inoculate, and industrialize the less fortunate of the world as a duty in service to God or to mankind. That this entire worldview, down to the philosophical bedrock upon which it rests, might have been a colossal mistake of collective egoism is only now being seriously considered. In 1972, the late historian Arnold Toynbee delivered a stinging indictment against Western religious monotheism as the real culprit behind the environmental crisis facing the world in these times. He actually suggested a return to pantheism with its reverence for nature as the first important step in redressing the balance. Although a sizable percentage of contemporary neo-pagans do not seem to realize the philosophical and socio-economic implications of what they are engaged in, they are nonetheless dedicated to bringing about the change that Dr. Toynbee recommended. And their operative method for doing this is not yet tuned to the most abstract level, in effect, monism versus dualism, but rather to one of the of its major permutations, the sexual analogy. Now, to understand this, we should consider that a, in a balanced cyclic universe, yin and yang would continue to revolve together, expanding and contracting in harmony with an essentially steady-state system. In order to force it into a linear historical track, the active masculine principle would have to be over-accelerated. And such a runaway system would then be maintained by the continued veneration of a transcendental male deity. Now, I do not mean to suggest that patriarch patriarchalism and dualism are synonymous, 
but there is an affinity between them. And with more intuition than intellection, modern neo-pagans have sensed this factor of the equation, and they have launched their major attack against the concept of a supreme father god by making Mother Nature the ultimate supreme deity. And they are consciously or unconsciously, unconsciously striving to create a theological counterforce to arrest and finally reverse our headlong rush to destroy the biosphere. Now, curiously enough, the contemporary witches are nearly all urbanites, without strong family attachments and with little affinity for rural provincialism. And in some ways, their attitude toward nature reminds us of the pre-revolutionary French aristocrats who costumed themselves as plowboys and milkmaids for lavish parties in manicured gardens. In the last quarter of the 20th century, we have become so removed from our agrarian origins that the revival of an ancient farmer's religion seems a daring innovation. But then, why not? Men and women are still members of the animal kingdom, or queendom, and we still eat food produced by the earth, and we are still elevated and invigorated by its climate, and our surrounding environment has a tremendous effect on us and our physical and mental well-being, and if we can achieve inner peace, outward satisfaction, and promote good health by ritually attuning ourselves to the great cycles of nature, no matter how removed or insulated we may be from them, then perhaps we should. And if so, uh, by doing so, we can help bring this runaway system of Western civilization under control. We might even consider neo-pagan evangelism. There is, however, a spiritual deficiency in the neo-paganism, which is unfortunate. And with the exception of Farifaria, certain of the Robert Graves covens and the Archigas Chicago Sabian cult, the neo-pagan subculture seems little concerned with transcendentalism or eschatology. There is a tacit acceptance of earthbound reincarnation, but the main emphasis is upon getting material benefit through the mystery of natural harmony. Now, witchcraft is a young people's religion, and it remains to be seen what trends will develop as it inevitably acquires an increasing percentage of older followers. Now, one wonders what will be the influence of the elders when every established coven and grove has a number of them. Now, if Gnosticism is transcendental, Witchcraft can be described as elemental. Gnostics believe that the world is a hell ruled by demons, whereas witches hold that it is a paradise man hardly deserves. Psychologically, we might say that the real difference in these views lies in opposite perceptions of the same environment. Imagine, if you will, how Bolière might have described the tree that Elizabeth Barrett Browning eulogized, and then recall the 71st and 72nd verses of Omar Khayyam's Rubiat. I sent my soul through the invisible some letter of that afterlife to spell, and after many days my soul returned and said, Behold, myself am heaven and hell, heaven but the vision of fulfilled desire and hell, the shadow of a soul on fire, cast on the darkness into which ourselves, so late emerged from, shall so soon expire. In summing up the neo-pagan position, we observe that their philosophy must often operate within the limited range of the sociocosm and the mesocosm, whereas the neo-gnostics must leap the continuum from microcosm to macrocosm in the same transcendental sense as the personal salvation of the Christians. For the most part, the neo-pagans have no heaven. They are eternal denizens of the earth sphere. One enclave has carried this earthy affinity to such a negative extreme that as spokesperson, its spokesperson equates the buried human corpse rotting to fertilize the soil with the ultimate merging of the soul into the goddess head 
That's just speculation. I find it be sophomoric. Fortunately, it's not typical. For all its adolescent shortcomings, most of which can be excused as growing pains, neopaganism has one overwhelming argument. Man is an animal living in a biosphere of limited capacity and resources, and, and any religion or philosophy which refuses to recognize and adjust for this is in fact counterproductive and opposed to the best interest of human society, no longer in the abstract sense for the distant future, but in our time. There is no rationale by which Jesus, Simon Crowley, or any Gnostic prophet can be transmuted into a savior of nature at this late date. A new vision of the ancient cycle of the ages is needed, and perhaps such men as Robert Graves, Frederick Adams, and others may provide it. Hermeticism. <clears throat> but what about those of us who might want the best of both the Gnostic and the pagan systems? In the first season of this article, I ventured the opinion that the venerable doctrines of Hermes Trismegistus happily resolved Gnostic transcendentalism with classical pagan natural harmony. It may very well be that such an elegant synthesis was the original intention of the unknown founders of the school of Hermetic philosophy. Hermetism, or more broadly Hermeticism, was the offspring of a marriage between paganism and Gnosticism that took place during the metaphysical heyday of Alexandria in the 2nd century AD. Like that of its Gnostic father, the Hermetic cosmos involved a distant paradise, a hierarchy of spheres which had to be ascended, a Gnosis set down for the elite to discover, and a legend of the fall of man, however, True to its pagan mother, the Hermetic universe was seen as originating from one creator with all the descending emanations, including the physical world, as harmonious extensions of the original cause, which permeates and enlivens everything in one totality. The Gnosis is contained in a great chalice called the Crater, identified with the Holy Grail, since the days of the medieval troubadours, and the fall of man does not refer to a wretched imprisonment as a result of sin, but rather to his falling in love with his own reflection in the mirror of nature, which we symbolize in the pentacle of art. Man is truly a divine son and is instructed to become godlike in order to understand the works of divinity, the magical religion par excellence. The Hermeticist is expected to ascend to the Ogadod via the celestial spheres, elements of which he had acquired on his descent and would relinquish each in his turn on his way back to paradise in an optimistic scheme of spiritual ascension. The later medieval Kabbalah, which sprang from the same Pythagorean roots, was almost monist in its essential philosophy and thus quickly united with Hermetism in the early European Renaissance to become our Western tradition. The tradition was only venerated in the West for a little over a hundred years, and in 1614 it suffered a serious setback when philologists Isaac Kossipan proved by linguistic content analysis that the air of Egyptian antiquities surrounding the writings of both Hermes um, were only an affected clamor, and that the Hermetic corpus was, in fact, no older than the early Christian era. Now, today, this seems a minor criticism, but in the 17th century, it was a crucial blow. And the, Greek, the Greco-Egyptian Hermeticists themselves could easily be forgiven for such an affectation. It was the literary style of their time. Perhaps the Renaissance occultists should have known this, but they wanted to believe that the writings of Hermes were pre-Christian and therefore proto-Christian. Otherwise, they would soon have been classified uh, as pagan and heretical, which, in fact, they were. Now, the fall from grace of thrice greatest Hermes was not to be cushioned with any sympathetic understanding. And perhaps 
if it had been, our Western tradition would be more respected in a position today. Now, it should be made clear that the term Hermetic Kabbalist hardly connotates a pseudo-Jew. Uh, Sabean Hermetic astrological magic, such as that practiced by Pacino in the 15th century, was certainly older than the 13th century Kabbalah of the Zohar. Pacino's successor, Pico della Mirandola, blended the Hermetic and Kabbalistic systems into a, into a synthesis that has been called the Christian Kabbalah, but the Hermetic influence, which was then thought to be proto-Christian. In his amalgam was greater and more subtle than such gematric manipulations as the insertion of the Hebrew letter Sheen into the Tetragrammaton to, to yield Yeshuah. And even today, the Hermetic Kabbalist could still be a Christian in the broadest sense of the term, but I feel that I feel that in our more tolerant modern world, he would be more fulfilled as a classical pagan. Most ideally, he would be a neo-pagan of the parabolical Canaanite mythos, the current transmutation of the cult of Melchizedek and Solomon with its sacred rites attuned to the seasonal cycle of nature. Subjectively, he would believe in the sovereignty of the microcosm and would realize that men and women build their own heavens and hells out of the plasma of the Yitzhara in much the same way that the body of light is built in the course of the great work. In our modern hermetic system, psychological individuation in effect, the discovery one's true will, is hardly an end in itself, but rather a prerequisite to the perfection of the survival vehicle for the soul. For us, continuance depends not only on acceptance of a gnosis and the mastery of its formulas, but in the careful preparation of a balanced spiritual personality that can exist as a potent entity beyond dependence on the physical body. And this is the supreme archonum of the Western tradition and the ultimate extension of positive transcendentalism. I submit that the neo-pagan hermetic magic vehicle reconciles the best aspects of elementalism and transcendentalism in an authentic and richly romantic tradition, stronger and more viable today than ever before. And as a final argument, I can do no better than to quote the conclusions of Hans Jonas from his book, The Gnostic Religion. And he says, The disruption between man and total reality is at the bottom of nihilism. The, Ill the illogicality of the rupture that is of a dualism without metaphysics makes its fact no less real, nor its seeming alternative any more acceptable. The state of isolated selfhood to which it condemns man may wish to exchange itself for a monistic naturalism which, along with the rupture, would also abolish the idea of man as man. Between that, Celia and her twin Charabitus, the modern mind hovers. Whether a third road is open to it, one by which the dualistic rift can be avoided, and yet enough of the dualistic insight saved to uphold the humanity of man, philosophy must find out. Or, if I may be so bold to add, rediscover in the hermetic axiom, as above, so below. Now, I have some footnotes at the end of this article, which I want to read because I think they're important to it. first footnote is, My opinion about the Enochian system and its subsequent influence on liberal bell legis cannot be properly uh, defended in the space of a paragraph. It should be the subject of a separate paper. It is true that Dee and Kelly were both hermeticists of the Griffith School, according to Francis Yates, and it is also true that there are dualistic and apocalyptic elements in the Corpus Hermeticum. But I still maintain that the theme of the Enochian Keys is Gnostic rather than Hermetic, 
and I asked the reader to read them with the characteristics of Gnosticism in mind before jumping to a contrary conclusion. My second footnote, in spite of the horror stories told about Crowley, some of which he encouraged, he was a masochist and not a sadist, and he, if he drove anyone insane, the chances are they were well along that road to begin with. Current critics of the polemic system might point to the 1969 Boy in the Box episode involving the Solar Lodge, the OTO, in Southern California, but that affair appears to have been been such a witch hunt that I would hardly consider it a valid point of argument. Um, we did a show on uh, Solar Lodge some time back. You might check in the archives. Unfortunately, my qualification of responsible would be considered by many who profess to be Thelemites. This is about uh, a responsible Thelemic commune. And I said, unfortunately, my qualification of responsible would be considered by many who profess to be Thelemites as an automatic negation of my statement. I think that the late Carl Gerber would have understood how to run a totally free community with an iron hand. And I believe that Herr Metzger in Switzerland has had some success along the same line. In other words, in order for these people to be free from the laws of restriction uh, and all, they have to, somebody, has to, somebody has to tell them uh, to, to restrict them for their own good. Uh, <laughs> so... So it's almost a contradiction in terms, but, it, but it's necessary. Now, the term mesocosm was coined by Frederick Adams to, to conceptualize a sacred dimension of the biosphere or the natural environment. To this, I've added the term sociocosm to accommodate the mystical aspects of a culture, and Adams postulates another cosm beyond the macrocosm dimension, but I leave that for him to define. Unfortunately, he's passed on. And the fifth footnote, Arnold Toynbee, the religious background of environmental of the environmental crisis, and this is from the International Journal of Environmental Studies, volume 3, 1972. That's a dynamite article. In harmony with our cyclic formula, my colleague Joseph Wilson informs me that when he joined the American witchcraft subculture in the early 1960s, there were a number of older people involved, and there was more emphasis on the mystical and even on the transcendental. Now, Wilson thinks that the craft became more elemental about with a large influx of young people during the recent psychedelic period. Now, the last footnote is it must be admitted that, now this is in relation to my talking about hermitude, about the hermetic tradition and also the OTA. It must be admitted that this is an advocate view. The writer of the, uh, is the creator, magister of this very cult, the Ordo Templi of Startes of the Church of Hermetic Sciences. Uh, a full exegesis of our parabiblical Canaanite mythos entitled The Balaster Mythos of the Magic of Solomon appeared in the OTA's Journal of Seventh Ray, Volume 2, Number 4, 1973. We also reprinted it in the Book of Solomon's Magic. Now, the bibliography that, that, that this paper is based on. Joseph Campbell's The Masks of God, The Masks of God, Volume 1, New York, The Viking Press, 1959. Crowley, Edward Easter, Gems from the Equinox, edited by Israel Regardi, St. Paul of Owen Publications, 1974. Hans Jonas, The Gnostic Religion, Boston, Beacon Press, 1963. Omar Khayyam, The Rubiat, translated by Edward Fitzgerald, 1968, London, Collins, Square Type Press. Carol Runyon, Frater Ali, now Frater Fabian, The Baal Start Mythos and the Magic of Solomon, The Seventh Ray, Volume 3, Number 4, and also the Book of Solomon's Magic. Shoemaker Way in the Occult Sciences and the Renaissance, Berkeley University, California Press, 1972. Arnold Toynbee, The Religious Background of the Present Environmental Crisis, International Journal of Environmental Studies, Volume 3, 1972. And finally, Francis Yates's Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition, New York Vintage Books, 1969. And that concludes our article of negative versus positive Gnosis, which we will put in text 
on our website, and it will be considered part of our destructive material. So next week, we're going to be discussing the magical multiverse, and we'll be basing that discussion on the works of the recent work by Marianne Rubenstein uh, of Columbia University Press called uh, Worlds Without End, The Many Lives of the Multiverse. This is a, it traces the multiverse all the way from the Epicureans and the Atomists of ancient Greece all the way up through uh, Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine and, uh, and uh, into the Renaissance and past Copernicus, the Enlightenment, and then finally, when it really comes out uh, with quantum physics and the discovery of antimatter, and of course we'll naturally be talking also about the man who, who, who really, really developed it in the literary sense, and that's Richard Sharp Shaver, and uh, the simultane. So we will be discussing next week all the, the philosophical and we'll also deal with Mishu Kaku's Parallel Worlds, so we'll be approaching the multiverse from philosophical terms, scientific terms, and literary terms. The magical multiverse, so be sure and tune in next week. And until then, good magic. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.